In our study today, we come to the beginning of the very sacred suffering of Jesus. His agony doesn't start when he is arrested. It starts when he enters into the Garden of Gethsemane. Something spiritual begins to happen in him as he approaches the Garden of Gethsemane. The title today is What Happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, specifically focusing on prayer and the agony of, of the garden. We will follow Jesus through this time. We want to see what we can learn. We want to see what God would teach us. We, we want to see how Jesus acts, what he asks for, and what he does at the worst moments of his life. That will help us so that we can respond in the right way in the worst moments of our life. If Jesus, as he's about to go to the cross, surrenders to the will of the Father, then how much does that speak to us about difficulties in our lives and us surrendering to the will of the Father? These are the things that we want to look at as we take a look at Jesus here in the garden. Now, um, Luke 21, let's just go ahead. Let's do this. Let's, let's read the passage first. And I'll, I'll make a couple of comments, maybe get a few things, just minor things out of the way. And then we'll dive in and see what we can apply. So Luke 22, 39 through 46. Coming out, that's out of the upper room, he went to the Mount of Olives. As he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And when he had come to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter temptation. This is a very important part key to overcoming temptation and behavioral issues. Changing behavior is hard. Changing habits is hard. Changing addictions is hard. But doesn't mean it can't be done. And prayer becomes a key to overcoming temptation. And he was withdrawn from them. Oh, excuse me. Um, when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you don't enter into temptation. And when he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven and strengthened him. It's not the only time Jesus was strengthened by angels. And I wonder how angels work in our lives in similar ways. And being in agony, this is the only place in the New Testament that this word agony is used. In being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then, he sweat, then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. And when he rose up from prayer, he had come to his disciples and he found them sleeping from sorrow. And then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Jesus would not have said to them twice in the beginning and the end of his, his own experience to pray unless you enter into temptation if prayer wasn't one of the keys to overcoming temptation. Prayer, having that regular time with the Lord, is definitely part of it. And we will talk about that as we make our way through here. We get to see Jesus praying and encouraging his disciples to pray. So in Luke 22, 39, he says, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives. So he would have come out of the upper room, which would be on the other side of the temple on what today is considered Mount Zion. There's Mount Zion, then there's Mount Moriah. 
And then there is the, the Mount, Mount Olivet. And so he would have come out of the upper room, past the temple on the Temple Mount, down into the Kidron Valley, and over onto the Mount of Olives. Up on the top of the Mount of Olives is where Jesus talked to them in Luke 21 about the end of the world. On the other side of that is Bethany, where Jesus would stay. So on this night, he stays in the garden knowing he's not going to go to bed that night. And it says, as he was accustomed. And his disciples also followed him. So at this point, they're a little clueless. Jesus has said a lot to them in the upper room. He said, I'm leaving. Uh, he, he has said, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to deny me. We know that they're full of sorrow themselves. And then it says, when he came to the place. Now, Luke just calls it the place. Matthew tells us it is called Gethsemane, which is the place of the olive press. And John tells us that it was a garden. So when we say that Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, it is completely accurate. Again, Gethsemane means the place of the olive press. And it is here that we see Jesus beginning to be pressed. We see him in that garden pressed where the olive press is. It's like the pressure is applied to him there. Another picture here is that Jesus is the anointed one. In Exodus, it tells us that the anointing oil was made mostly out of olive oil. The second ingredient that was most common was myrrh. Myrrh is a, is a perfume that is a sap that has to be crushed. Smyrna, the city of Smyrna, we've been covering in Revelation, they, had to be, they were going to suffer, they were going to be crushed, but a sweet-smelling aroma was going to come out of it. Jesus is going to be pressed, but a sweet-smelling aroma, the sacrifice pleasing to God is going to come out of it. God has a purpose in the pressing in the crushing at times. And maybe we don't like that all that much. Maybe we're like, God, we would rather you just do good things. We'd rather you not really stress us out. We'd rather you not tempt us We'd or, or lead us into temptation. We'd rather you not allow difficulties and troubles in our lives. But God has his purposes even in allowing evil. God created a world where there would be evil. He didn't create evil. Evil is the rejection of good, but he created a world where there could be evil. God had a plan for it. And he's using evil to bring around the great salvation for anyone who would believe in him. And now, if, this is, if, if the anointing oil is made mostly out of olive oil, and now you have the Messiah, and the word Messiah means anointed one, in an olive garden, being pressed, he's anointed. It may be that the very oil from this area most likely was used to make anointing oil for the temple. Now, it was also a garden, and this is meant to be contrasted with the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Gethsemane and the Garden of Eden have things that are different, but they have things that are in common. Where sin started in the Garden of Eden, Jesus started to take care of sin in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where Adam represented mankind when he took the fruit and he rebelled and he ate it and he drug us all into a sinful nature so that all of us were born because of a sinful nature because of Adam so that when we get to heaven let's just get him he drug us into this thing let's get him now I'm kidding but he did just as one man Adam represented the entire world when he ate of that fruit 
So one man, Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane began or maybe even made his decision with all of the temptation to go through with this sacrifice so that he could take care of the sins of mankind. So he could reverse what was done in the Garden of Eden by beginning the suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is one motif that you find in the Bible, the gardens. There's another one, and that's the trees of the Bible. It's interesting, you've got the tree of life in Genesis, and you've got the tree of life in the last couple chapters of the book of Revelation. You've got Jesus dying on a tree. You've got everyone who was cursed uh, that is hung on a tree. You've got all these things, the Bible, the tree of man, we got these trees in the Bible. When you begin comparing what the Bible says about gardens or trees, it becomes a very powerful Bible study. And you see, the, especially the thread of what God is doing in redemption throughout these different motifs in the Bible. Garden is one of them. So uh, Gethsemane was a place of sorrow from the time Jesus got there until the time that he left. Matthew 26, 36 through 38 says, Then Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and with me or stay here and watch with me. Now, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John in a little bit deeper into the garden, which these are the, what we call them the inner circle. Seems to be that God, for whatever reasons, brought them into a deeper relationship with him and revealed more things to them. They were on the Mount of Transfiguration. They went in when the little girl was raised from the dead and Jesus took her by the hand and said, Talitha Kumi. They, they were with him here further in the garden. And he becomes, he begins to be sorrowful. So sorrowful that, that he says, even unto death. You could translate it, I'm so sorrowful I could die. He was at the point of, of wanting to die. Now, was he speaking in a metaphor here when he says, I'm so sorrowfully unto death? As if he's saying, I, you know, I, uh, I couldn't be any more sorrowful? Was he really at the point of death? I don't have any reason to take it as being some kind of an analogy. And then he says to them, stay here. Watch with me. We know that Jesus was fully human and fully God. And he is now in his full humanity suffering. And he wants to be with them. He wants his friends close by. He says to them, stay here and watch with me. Now, what does that watch mean? Some people believe that Jesus was telling them, watch because Judas is going to be coming. I'm going to go over here and pray and Judas is on his way and I want you guys to watch so I can go over here and pray. And, and maybe, but when Jesus says, watch with me and Jesus goes to pray, I think he's talking about prayer. We already know he wants them to pray. Pray lest you enter into temptation. We know he wants them to pray. So, so prayer is watching. Are you watching over your family? Are you watching over your children? Are, are you watching over your friends? Are you watching over your life? Are you walking with God, spending some time with Him, 
about the things that matter to you most, asking you to help your, your family, your friends, this in your life, that struggle in your life? Are you spending that time with them? And I want to be, be careful as we begin to talk about prayer. We're going to talk quite a bit about it tonight. I want to be careful that I don't lay on you some kind of a legalistic trip. Like you need to be praying for an hour every day. If you don't pray for an hour every day, then God's not going to listen to your prayers. I don't think that that's true at all. I think you should pray until you're done. I used to pray. When I first started, we first started the church back in 85. I thought, well, a pastor needs to at least pray for the people of the church for an hour a day. So I'd go in the upper room of the little two-story place that we got up on Old Father Bark was the name of the street our house was on. And I'd go in the little upper room, the upper area there, bedroom, and uh, I would put the kitchen timer under a pillow because it's the only timer I had. This was long before we had timers on our phones. And I'd set it for 20 minutes because that's all it had. It's a 20-minute timer. And I'd have to reset it three times. And I'd put it under the pillow and then I'd pray for the church. I'd pray for everything I could think of. I'd pray for those who are sick. I'd pray for people to come to Christ. I'd pray for everything I possibly think of. And I would think, okay, 15 minutes had to pass. And I'd pick it up and it'd be like seven minutes. Oh, I'd put it back down. And prayer became laborious to me. It became tedious to me. And I finally decided, I am just going to pray until I'm done. You know what I found? I found that I prayed longer. Because I found myself not trying to fill the hour, but not being afraid just to sit down in his presence, just to be there with him. You know what I think of when I think of prayer that way? Watching in prayer and being with God in prayer. I think of Abraham. Abraham was called the friend of God. And, and I don't know why I think this about Abraham. Maybe if I go back to Genesis and read it, I'll see it. But I picture Abraham in the evening walking out to the outskirts of his camp and just spending some time with God. I know he built altars. I know he sought God. But I just picture him just out talking with God about the things that are on his heart, that are on his mind. That's what we should be doing. He's a friend. Do it in the morning when you drink your coffee. Do it in the morning before you get out of bed. I, I find myself, a lot of my praying is done before I ever get out of bed. I, I'm starting to wake up. I'm starting to think of the day. I'm starting to think of the troubles of the people around me. And I start to pray. Just having that interaction with God. Just take time, any time to do it. Whatever, whatever works for you, do it. You know, there are people that will lay a trip on people if they don't get up early. The Bible says, get up early and, and pray. So if you don't get up early and pray, you're not obeying the Bible. Kind of think God just wants us to pray. And, and if you're better at night, I used to get up to try to do my quiet times early in the morning, get my coffee, get my Bible, sit down at the table. After a few minutes of praying, my eyes closed, I'd have my, my head on the edge of the Bible. Then I'd have a mark on the, my forehead where I fell asleep while I was praying. What, whatever's best for you whatever works for you, that you watch and pray. There's a spiritual aspect to it too, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. Now, this is extreme sorrow Jesus is feeling. And it leads to a very fervent prayer. Very fervent. In fact, I don't know that you can get any more fervent. And when you have extreme emotion, take that to God. Pray about what you care about Pray about what means something to you. 
Don't just say words. Pray about what you are passionate about and there will be a fervency and then it will matter. And God said, call out to me and I will answer you. He said, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Ask and you will receive. And the idea is in continual. And we want it to be something that really matters. If someone wants something from me, if they come in a very robotic fashion and ask me for something, I'm more likely to go, well, let me think about it. But if someone comes with a very passionate plea and it is within my ability to be able to give it, I'm much more likely to give it to the passionate plea. I think that God's looking for the passionate plea. He's not looking for, well, they did it. They put in there, well, 35 minutes today. That's much better than the last week. So I'm going to answer their prayer. He's looking for you to care about what you're praying about. This ought to be what we pray. And that's what Jesus does. And Jesus, by the way, spent a lot of time in prayer. Jesus prayed all night before he chose his disciples. He prays here in the Garden of Gethsemane before he faces this distress. He prays. He, he goes away when he sends them off into a storm. He goes on a high mountain and prays. We just find him praying a lot. And if Jesus prayed a lot, then we ought to pray, pray a lot. Then it ought to be a part of our lives. The Bible says pray without ceasing, which would mean we're praying all the time. But Jesus also said, when you pray, go into your prayer closet where no one sees you and the God who sees you in secret will reward you openly. Resist the temptation to go and tell somebody, I got up early and spent two hours praying before I, before I came to meet you today, before I came to work. Resist that. You're, it's not supposed to be for that. It's between you and God. And just think about that. God says, if you pray in secret, he'll reward you openly. What an incredible promise. That's, that's a promise that God's going to listen to your prayers that are done for no other reason than just praying to him, you and him alone. And he'll answer that prayer. How powerful that is. Now, why, why was this so emotional and why did he have such great distress? Some say he feared the cross. I don't know that I disagree. I think if I were facing some torment, death, I'd fear it as well. He's fully human. Some say he feared becoming sin. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, and he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So he became something he never knew, which was sin, so that you and I could become something we never had, which was righteousness. We could become righteous because he gave that. There's also the separation from God. So when he became sin, I don't think that, I mean, they're one. I don't think there can be a complete separation, but God also had to somehow look away, which is why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And being fully human, he's in shock from the torture, the beating, carrying the cross, being nailed to it. And so he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I think here there is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Isaiah foretells his suffering. And it's really an important passage because there are people who say that Jesus just got the wrong people angry and he got himself crucified. And so they said, well, he died for our sins. Not understanding that it's foretold. The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins as was foretold and was buried and rose again as was foretold. 
And if you believe it, receive it, and stand on it, you'll be saved. That's 1 Corinthians 15, the first few verses. I think 1 through 5. That's the gospel. It was foretold. So in Isaiah 53, 3 and 4, it not only says this. Let me tell you a couple other things it says. It says that he was chastised for our peace. The word chastised is a nice word for beating. He was beaten for our peace. That entire night, he had his peace taken away from him because he was beaten, beaten by the Jewish guard, beaten by and mocked by Herod's guard, beaten by the Roman guards, which ended with a scourging and a crucifixion. So his peace was taken from him that night so that we could have peace. He was chastised for our peace and by his stripes were healed. He was scourged so that in heaven there will be no more illness, no more sickness. Doesn't mean God doesn't heal here and now because I think he does, but he doesn't heal everybody. But in heaven, there will be no lame. There will be no sick. We will be completely whole. So the fulfillment of us being our, the stripes bringing us healing is in heaven ultimately. Not that it can't be here and now because it is from time to time. So, and then it says, and God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So here's another passage that talks about him being full of sorrow. This is Isaiah 53, 3 and 4. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow acquainted with grief. This is foretelling 700 years before Jesus, whom Jesus would be. So as a human, he was acquainted with sorrow and grief. Why? Because he saw the sinful results. He saw the results of sin in the lives of people. I've shared with you before that when Jesus looked at someone who was engulfed in sin, he looked at someone bound by sin. He wanted to set sinners free. He saw them bound by it. We may look at someone steeped in an addiction or some sinful behavior, and we may look down on them like they're weak, but God sees them overtaken by sin and the results that the destruction that sin is bringing in their lives. And so Jesus was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief because he saw this all around him. And it says, and we were hid as we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. He carried our griefs and sorrows. I believe in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus began to go in, God took all of the grief and all of the sorrow of all of mankind and laid them on Jesus. He carried our sorrows and griefs. This doesn't mean that we don't grieve. I lost a spouse. And so when I talk to someone who lost a spouse, I don't even have to say to them, I know how you feel. I can tell as they talk to me and tell me, you know, my husband has passed away a couple months ago. I, I just lost my wife. I can tell they know I know what they know because they know that I lost a spouse. I, but I don't feel the exact same thing they feel. Jesus carried the sorrow and grief so I wouldn't be crushed by that grief and sorrow. He carried it so he would know the exact same thing. He knew my grief. He knew it completely because he carried it, all of it. No wonder it was so crushing. And that's why I say, I don't know that it's an analogy. I'm sorrowful unto the point of death. It's all the grief and all the sorrow of all mankind put upon him as all the sin of all the people in all the world was laid upon him as well. In the garden, he took our sorrow and grief so that we would not be crushed by it. Listen to the result of this. 
In Revelation 21, 3 and 4, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Tabernacle, it, it means living with. God's living with man. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. We will finally enter into that world where there is no evil and there is no sorrow. People will say to me, why did God make evil and why did God make suffering? And it's usually connected to some tragic story about a child suffering. And when you tell them that God has a plan and a purpose, they come back to the child because they can't disconnect. They want that story to, to, to have the emotion that takes it away from any logic that might be brought into the account. God's creating a world where there is no evil and no suffering. But he's creating it by what he created here, using evil and suffering in our lives to bring us to that place where there is no evil and suffering. The very world you want or object to this world is on its way. If you would just believe, trust in him. So then in verse 40, the middle of verse 40, then it says, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And when he was withdrawn about a stone's throw, he knelt down and prayed. So he says to the disciples, including Peter, pray lest you enter into temptation. Earlier that evening, Jesus said, this, said to Peter, Satan desires to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would be would not well, that uh, that your faith wouldn't fail, and when you have returned, strengthen the brethren. So we know that Peter's going to fail. Does that mean it was set in stone for Peter to fail? Does that mean that it was just predestined for him? It was predetermined for him to fail? No. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have said this. If Jesus says, "Pray that you do may not enter into temptation," but he has no hope of not entering into temptation, why is he saying it to him? Would you, to your child, say, ask me nicely and I'll give you ice cream? And then they ask you nicely and you go, yeah, no. I decided already you can't have any. Why would you say to them, ask me nicely for ice cream if you weren't going to give it to them? So you say, well, Jesus already told him he was going to fail. Yeah, but, but God has foreknowledge. So had Peter prayed here when Jesus said it, instead of sleeping watched instead of sleeping he would have been able to overcome the temptation and Jesus would have never have told us that Peter would have stood strong through it he even tells him how to do it pray lest you enter into temptation but he doesn't do it now this is one of the great keys to overcoming temptation and this is this is very powerful I talk about several keys to overcoming temptation walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh I love that because you don't focus on the negative, you focus on the positive. So you're really struggling with something. You can't stop watching what you're, what you're watching when no one else is around or you're sneaking off to watch it. So instead, you walk in the spirit and then you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh because now you're walking in the spirit. You're wanting to do what God wants you to do. And as you do that day by day, then you're overcoming the things of the flesh. If you delight in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. One of the things to overcome temptation is to delight in God, to delight in him tomorrow more than today. 
Do you delight in, in the Lord or do you delight in the world? Do you delight in the things of the world or do you delight in the Lord? If you delight in the things of the world, no wonder you have desires for worldly things. If you delight in God, you're going to have desires for godly things. And another one of these verses to help us overcome temptation is this one. Pray lest you enter into temptation. So I'd said when you're praying, you want to watch over your family, your friends, the things that are happening in your life, the struggles, your needs. He said, ask and we'll be given. But another thing that you want to do is talk to him about your struggles. Talk to him about your temptations. Talk to him about your addictions, your behavioral issues. Talk to him about your struggles in the Christian walk. Maybe the, your lack of faith. Maybe your struggles in faith. Talk to him about the things going on. Ask him to help you. Ask him to show you. Ask him to get it out of your life. Ask him to reveal what you can do to help him get it out of your life. Pray about it. When is the last time that you went for a walk with God or woke up in the morning and just prayed about your struggle, your, your sin? Pray lest you enter into temptation. Jesus wouldn't say that if it didn't help it. He's not just saying it to say it. It's a way you can change your destiny. Prayer changes destinies. And the destiny can be changed in sinful behavior by praying. And just think about this. If you really got a hold of this, where you were like, I'm going to just be with God a few times a day or, or one time a day even. But I'm going to talk to him about everything that's on my heart and mind. I'm going to ask him for help on everything that's on my heart and mind. And I'm just going to pray until I'm done. Now, you have a promise from him. Pray, lest you enter into, into temptation. Again, if it, if it didn't help with temptation, then it wouldn't matter. He wouldn't say that. He would be deceptive to me. That's my opinion. If Jesus said things like this, pray lest you enter into temptation, and prayer can't help you to, in, to not enter into temptation, then it would be deceptive on the part of Jesus. It's like if he says, choose today, to serve God and you can't choose today to serve God, it would be deceptive. The things in the Bible have to mean what the Bible says. You have to have real genuine choice. And one of those real genuine choices is that you can pray and prayer really has to change things because he said, ask and you will receive. The Old Testament story of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is sick and he's on his bed and Isaiah comes to see him. And Isaiah says, the Lord told me you're going to die from this sickness. And then Isaiah left. Nice, good, encouraging visit from his prophet and friend. And God stops Isaiah in the, out in the courtyard. Because when he left, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and cried to God. Literally tears to God. And God said, go back and tell him I've given him more years. He prayed and the thing the prophet had told him would happen is now changed because he turned his face to the wall and cried out to God. Don't tell me prayer doesn't change things. I weary of that statement. I've gone from just being annoyed to being slightly angry about it. Prayer doesn't change things. Prayer changes you. Well, you're a thing. 
How can you say that? If, if, you, if you are changed by prayer, then prayer changed something. It changed you. Prayer doesn't change things, it changes you. What kind of faith is that? Jesus said, when you pray, believe that you have it. Prayer doesn't change things, it changes you. I don't want to follow the teaching of anyone who believes that. Who believes that prayer doesn't have any power. The Bible says in the last days they will have a form of godliness, but they will deny its power. Tell me that's not denying the very power of God. Prayer changes things. So ask him. Prayer changes people around you. God intervenes in the lives of people around you. So pray and pray fervently and pray like you mean it. And one of the things prayer will help you with is your very temptations. Every so often someone will say, and I understand this from my own life. Temptation is so strong. What do I do? Walk in the Spirit. Repent. Call out to God and pray. Now he was withdrawn and drawn about a throne throw away. Thrones, stones throw away. He knelt down and prayed. Now, Gethsemane is a place of prayer for the disciples, but for Jesus as well. Here, Peter could have escaped temptation. Matthew 6, 13 says, and do not, we're supposed to pray, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Again, if we're to pray, God doesn't lead us into temptation. The spirit drove, led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. If our prayer not to be led into the wilderness doesn't not help God not lead us into temptation, then why would he tell us to pray it and to be delivered from the evil one? If my prayer, Lord, deliver me from the evil one, doesn't deliver me from the evil one, why would I pray it? It's got to mean something. It's got to have power. It's, uh, when you face temptation, it seems very overwhelming. James 5.16 says, the effective, it's, it's the second half of the verse, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That's the New King James. Avails. Very fancy word. We don't use it. I availed a lot of fish when I went fishing. It just means accomplishes. It accomplishes a lot. The fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes a lot. Well, what, what would that be? What would that fervent, effective prayer be? I think that we could say that Jesus was fervent. He's sorrowful. How fervent? Verse 42 he went a stone's throw away and prayed, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The first thing that Jesus does is brackets within his prayer to be delivered from the cup, God's will. The same way we're told in the Lord's Prayer to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Praying that God's will would be done is never wrong. Pray that people would be healed. Believe that God would heal them. But it's okay to pray for his will. And praying for his will doesn't mean you lack faith. Like those who are trying to put some kind of a, some kind of a formula together to give God so God will do it. Like God's looking for a combination from us. I got to click all the things. There. Is that it? Nope. There. Prayer is an honest conversation with a living God that we want his will to be done. Of course, God's will is the best. But part of God's will is that there's power in prayer, that you would pray and have your prayers answered. That's part of God's will. So when you pray your will be done, you're actually praying that he would answer your prayers. Now, if he doesn't, we trust him. 
Because if God doesn't want it for us, we don't want it even if we want it. And I realize that's confusing. But it's true. Even if it's something devastating. If God doesn't want it, I don't want it. Even though I want it. But God, part of his will is that I would pray and believe and receive. So when you say the Lord's will be done, don't let somebody return that into some negative connotation of a lack of faith. This is the faith movement that does that. And I'm accused of picking on them all the time. So I might as well pick on them even more. So because they tell people, if you if you lack faith, if you pray for God's will, then that's a lack of faith. No, it's not. It's faith. How much faith does it take to say, Lord, deliver me, but whatever your will, I'll serve you, I'll follow you, I'll love you. How much faith is that? It takes faith to be delivered, but it takes faith to accept it if God isn't going to deliver you. Faith, it's a great, it's all faith, one way or another. What was this cup that he was going to be delivered from? Again, uh, maybe the suffering of the cross, maybe the becoming sin. It was the whole experience, I think. I, I would not equate it to the cup of the wrath of God. And there are a lot of people who do. In, in Revelation, when it says that he caused the, the cup of the wrath of God to be poured upon them, just because it's cup doesn't mean it's connected. Uh, but Jesus asked for the cup to be taken away. And we know the cup is the cross. We know it's, it's the sacrifice. We know it's all of it included and probably everything. The suffering, the becoming sin, the separation from God. It's probably everything. But it wasn't removed from him because there was no other way. If there was another way, God could have done it. But it was the only way. Now, Jesus also prayed this three times. We know from the other Gospels that he went in and prayed it, came back, followed them, told, to, uh, had them, saw them asleep, went and prayed it again, came back and they were sleeping again, went and prayed again, came back a third time, they were sleeping again. So we know he prayed it three times. So it's never wrong to pray for the same thing several times. Just pray it like you mean it. Don't pray it just repeating the words like the heathens do, Jesus said. Jesus said, when you pray, don't think you're heard for your many words like the heathens do. So mean it when you pray it. Mean it. Now, verse 43, an angel appeared to him from heaven and strengthened him. In the middle of this agony, in the middle of this prayer, an angel suddenly comes and appears to him and strengthens him. In Matthew eleven fourteen, excuse me, four eleven, it says, then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So they're serving him, ministering to him, strengthening them here. We know from Hebrews 1.14, are they not all ministering spirits, speaking of angels, sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? We who are saved are inheriting salvation and angels minister to us. Psalms 34.7 says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fears him and delivers them. And in Acts 27, 23, Paul said, For there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong and to whom I serve. There are angels all around us ministering in all kinds of ways. And I believe there is a strength in prayer that is connected to the work of angels. I don't understand it. I don't pretend to understand it. A lot of mysteries. Now, you would think that when the angel strengthened him, then that would be it. 
but the angel strengthened him for him to continue on. So it says, and being in agony, verse 44. Now, as I said, this is the only place this word agony is used. And it comes from the Greek word, which I would pronounce agon. I don't know if that's the right way to say it or not, because it looks like that. But it means to be in the games and contending. It means to have a, a competitive competition, contention going on. And agony comes from that. It means that you're in a contention, you're in a battle, you're in a struggle. So this prayer for Jesus was not just him asking God for something, but he was in a struggle. That's what the agony is. It's a struggle. Him and Satan are battling it out. When we pray, there's a spiritual battle taking place. And I'm not just talking about when we pray, Lord, please bind the enemy in their lives. You should pray that way. When, when you pray, Lord, help them that the enemy wouldn't attack them. Please help the enemy to stop attacking them. Uh, bind, it's good to pray that way. It's not bad. But I believe that prayer in general is an agony. It's a struggle. We're, we're, and that's why we have to continue in it. That's why Jesus says, don't stop. He taught us to persist in prayer because we're in this contention, this battle. And I think a lot of times we stop before we get through to the other side. It says that he prayed more earnestly. The answer to Jesus being in this contention with the enemy was to pray more earnestly. Then his sweat became like drops of blood falling down on the ground. Now, there is a medical condition where blood mingles with your sweat and you literally sweat blood. And it is very in, in, in very intense moments and it's very rare. Does that what happened to Jesus? It looks like it. What, again, is this an analogy? Is it saying that his, he's just so intense on what he was doing? And by the way, the picture I had in my hallway of Jesus with his hands folded on a rock looking up to heaven doesn't match this at all. I don't think that's what he looked like in the garden. His, his sweat is falling like great drops of blood. The fact that it can happen is pretty amazing given how long ago this is written. That there is a medical condition that it happens to people. And it has to do with fervency. It's pretty amazing. Again, we get to, we get to that idea of fervency. He so fervently prayed. And we want to pray meaning it. We want to pray fervently. Finally, in verse 45, when he rose up from prayer and had come to the disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. His response to sorrow was to pray and to pray fervently and to be in that agony. Their response to sorrow was to sleep. He woke up. He, he woke up. He came out of his prayer with the determination to go to the cross. He will say, it's done. My betrayer is at hand. That's what happens next. They wake up from their sleep with nothing changed. Their sorrow is the same. If we sleep instead of pray, nothing changes. If we make sure we pray, I'm not saying you can't sleep. I'm just saying if you make sure you pray, then things will change. I don't know what things will change, but I know they'll change. 
it's an incredibly important promise from the scriptures that things will change. And that we do things the way God wants them to do. Begin praying and asking for things and believing that you'll receive it. How exactly you do that, I'm not even sure. But you got to do it. You got to make those efforts. You need to practice those things. And he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter temptation. Now, three things in closing. Whatever we face, we don't do it alone. Christ is with us. He said, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And we can trust him for his will. Because he has a purpose, he has a plan for our lives. We know that God has predestined us to be like Christ. The Bible says it's appointed once for man to die. So even our deaths are an appointment. We trust God with that. But nevertheless, we know why we go through whatever we go through, that Christ is with us. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are there with me. Number two, prayer changes destinies. Prayer changes things and prayer changes you. The next time you hear somebody say prayer doesn't change things, prayer changes you. then you say in your mind, prayer changes me and things. Because it's nonsensical. Doesn't make any sense. Why would God give us prayer and tell us to pray and tell us we're going to receive when we do if we don't? Kind of talk. Of, what kind of faith is that? What kind of faith is it to say I'm going to pray, but I'm not going to get anything? Where's the faith in that? Finally, it's amazing that the unseen world around us, angels, are working with us. I don't understand it all but I like it and I'm excited about it. Doesn't mean we worship angels. Doesn't mean anything weird, right? Doesn't mean we start looking for angels around every corner, but that angels have been involved in your life, believer. He's been involved in my life. They've been involved in my life, probably more than we know. May we understand that and stand strong for him and make a difference in the lives of people around us by being like Abraham and just walking out with God. Sitting up on the edge of your bed in the morning and talking to him. Getting your cup of coffee and going in the backyard and talking to him. And, and God will do things in your life. He's promised that. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, what an incredible promise these things are. As we see Jesus struggling in the garden, we see him determining to go and to make the sacrifice of the cross. And even if we are, if, if are going to go through some difficulty, some struggle, some horrible thing, how much better to be ready by being with you like Jesus was, to be ready to face it. And Lord, when we can overcome temptation by prayer, no wonder the enemy wants us to do away with prayer. Let prayer become our habit. Let it be what we do. Let us pray every day like we breathe, calling on you to help us and our children and our grandchildren and our friends and our grandparents. Help us that we don't let prayerlessness creep in. And we thank you that we have the opportunity to be with you, the living God. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.